Last time, I was joined by Peter Kolchinski, the co-founder of RA Capital. RA Capital has over $7 billion under management for public and private biotech companies. I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. We talked with Peter Kolchinski last time about his book, The Great American Drug Deal, a new prescription for innovative and affordable medicines. This time, we'll talk about investing, the big picture, and giving back to society. Peter Kolchinski and part two of our interview next on the Cineos Health Podcast. Welcome back, Peter Kolchinski, to the Cineos Health Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me again. So we talked last time about The Great American Drug Deal, your book on how the drugs that we make can be thought of as a mortgage, the sort of thing that we invest in as a society. And in return, we pay the biotech companies, we pay the innovators, we pay the pharma companies, but the pharma companies then make sure that we get the value. We get the ownership at the end of the day. I'm now going to talk about something different about value and ownership, and that's the work that you do. It's your day job. Your day job is not an author. Your day job is as a portfolio manager and co-founder of RA Capital. Can you tell me something about how you got into this field as a converted scientist? A lot of the people that listen to the podcast are converted scientists doing something in pharma. What was your journey like? I was fortunate growing up to see my father, really my parents, launch a business around technology that my father had invented. He was a computer hardware engineer, and he really epitomized for me American ingenuity and work ethic. He came up with this technology, he formed a business, he hired people, he in some ways changed the world with this technology in a small way. I don't want to exaggerate. And I was really proud of that. And I imagine that when I went into the biomedical sciences, that I would do something similar. I would invent something and maybe I would bring a medicine to the market and change the world in that way. What I discovered was that it's really, really hard to invent anything new in the biomedical sciences. You got to be ready to toil away for 10, 20 years on something and have it not work. And maybe have nothing to show for it except some hard-earned knowledge. And I wasn't really willing to take that chance. I wanted to be close to the development of products that would make a difference in the world. So I realized I could probably do that by getting onto the business side of biotech and then working with people who did have great breakthroughs and ideas that just needed support, needed somebody to shape a business plan and raise money and ultimately take care of the business side of things. I figured I would get a job in industry doing some kind of analysis of different companies so I could learn good technologies from not so good ones, great companies from not so great ones, and then join a great company. And I applied for a job at Vertex Pharmaceuticals. I had met a gentleman by the name of Richard Aldrich. He was a chief business officer there. And I wanted to work with Rich and his department doing business development analysis. Turned out he had just left Vertex. And so instead, he ended up giving me a job offer to just join him as he embarked on the next phase of his career, where he would be joining the boards of some companies, doing some investing himself. And he wanted somebody with a science background, you know, a young, hardworking person to work with him on all these different projects. I was excited to tackle all the consulting projects that we would have and evaluate companies that he was thinking of getting involved with. And this was May of 2001. And by the end of 2001, he said, you know what? We're not going to do any more consulting. That's probably not a great use of my time. We're not going to invest in private companies because this industry is way too risky for me to be putting money into private companies. It'll probably just bankrupt me. Why don't you just focus on this account where I have some of my cash and some biotech stocks and tell me which biotech stocks I should be buying and selling. And I thought, wow, that is not at all what I thought this job was going to be. I don't feel 
qualified. I wasn't trained for this. I really want to be, you know, elbow deep in the science and evaluating public companies doesn't always let you really get deep into the science. You know, companies put out press releases and they have their talking points, but they won't answer all your questions. Rich said, well, look, don't worry about it. Just do your best. And as I come up with other companies, maybe I can get involved as a founder. I'll pull you in and you can nerd out all you like going elbow deep on the signs with those companies. So I thought, okay, fine. Stock picking will just be how I pass the time while I look for those juicy, deeper projects, which will pull me in on. But what I discovered really focusing on the public biotech markets over the next couple of years is that while you can't get deep with any one company necessarily, you can learn a bit from many companies working on the same problem. You can talk to every public company working on a diabetes drug and piece together a deeper understanding of diabetes. And you get a sense for the totality of human effort that's being applied to rolling back that disease. That was the approach that I took to doing diligence. And I found it really interesting, engaging. I learned a lot and I love learning. And I found that I was able to make some investment decisions that actually went well. And I thought, wow, I didn't really learn finance, but Rich explained to me that with most development stage companies, you really just need to ask how much cash they have and how fast they're burning it. That's about the extent of the financial analysis. And otherwise you should ask yourself, what would this be worth if it worked? And you can look at what the revenues are of other diabetes drugs to understand what a new drug that's even better than the others might generate. And so if those numbers are big, then success will be richly rewarded. And then you can ask yourself, well, what's the probability of success? And if it's high enough, then you can multiply what's it worth if it works by the high enough probability of success and ultimately place your bets. That's pretty much the style that felt right to me to survey an entire landscape and then look for the best, most undervalued companies that had a lot of upside to their expected value. I recruited the person who's now my partner, Raj, a couple of years after starting with Rich. And Raj and I built the firm together. And we've developed a style of always sharing the knowledge that we learned. So we weren't just lone wolves picking stocks, sticking them together and calling them a portfolio. We really learned together. And as we built out the team, we built internal systems that would allow us to share our knowledge across the firm so that we collectively got smarter. And eventually we started making maps, these mind maps of all these competitive landscapes. And that turned out to be a really great training tool. And I now enjoy every week or two weeks, a meeting with an associate on our team that's updated one of our maps. And I get a download of everything that's going on for an entire disease or set of diseases. When COVID struck, we put together a team of people to map out all the technologies that were being developed to tackle COVID. And actually, those maps we made available to the public. So people can go to the racap.com website and download some high-resolution maps of COVID vaccines, drug treatments, and diagnostics to get a sense for our approach. So I don't think I ever stopped being a scientist. We'll put a link in the show notes to that map. Those maps are, frankly, amazing. These Tech Atlas kind of maps. I think that probably the first time I saw them, I want to say it was like five years ago, Peter. I visited your offices in Boston and you walked around showing me these maps. I did not appreciate anything other than that they had a lot of words on them. Very, very tiny text. So I could see that it was a lot there. But I didn't appreciate how much of the scope that you got and how you could make investment decisions based on that. I'm wondering if you could just describe that and then we can talk a little bit about COVID particularly. Yeah. Being an investor requires a certain degree of decisiveness. There's so much that you don't know about the future and it can sometimes be paralyzing. And yet you can't generate a return for your investors unless you make some decisions. And 
make some investments. You worry that you're going to lose money on those investments, but you hope that you won't. You hope that they will succeed. And one of the things that weighs on an investor at any time, really before they make an investment and then every day that they're holding an investment is, is there some other company out there that's going to eat my company's lunch? The competitive landscape. Am I investing in what is really the best technology? That uncertainty about what's in left field can leave one somewhat indecisive. By creating these comprehensive maps that attempt to identify every technology that's out there and put it all in one field of vision, you get a sense for the whole scope of the competitive landscape and you know what's in left field. So when you ultimately make a choice to bet on this particular, I'm going to swap analogies here, on this particular chess piece, you know what else is on that chessboard and you know what the threats are to your chess piece. And so once you've mapped out all the different chess pieces on the chessboard and really studied them, you can make a decision with more confidence which ones you're going to support, which ones you're going to bet on, as opposed to not mapping it out and taking meetings with various chess pieces that come through your door and they say, I'm a bishop and I'm on E4 on the breast cancer chessboard. Unless you've got perfect memory, it's kind of hard to just hold that entire chessboard in your head, all the different chess pieces you meet with and all the different chessboards that they're on. So it just helps to diagram it out, I find. And then what's great is after you've reached your decision and you achieve that moment of decisiveness where you say, I will invest in this and here's why, the map helps you explain it to other people. And a lot of these companies, they need a lot more money than what any one investment fund can provide. And so you need to be able to bring others along to inspire them to believe in the value of this particular chess piece. And our maps have helped us do that to recruit people, to recruit other investors to a project. By making something more understandable, you are making it more likely to attract the resources that it needs in order to actually have a chance at playing out. There may be ideas out there that are so incomprehensible that they fail to attract money and people, and yet they could have been a solution to an important disease. What a shame. So we try to identify every good idea to ultimately place it on the chessboard and then to be able to explain to everybody else why this particular pawn is critically important to winning the game and different from the other pawns that are on the board. So if you haven't seen them already, I strongly suggest that you do click on the show notes and look at the COVID-19 map, even if you're not working in COVID-19. I don't think that over sound we can adequately describe how comprehensive, big, tiny print and web-like these maps are. So if you've seen one that shows essentially all the biochemical processes in a cell where it's blown out like that, looks like a circuit diagram almost. Imagine that, but for mechanisms of action and companies and stages of development and side effects, it's amazing. So strong endorsement there for these maps as really providing a view that you just don't get being on the ground, working on one project, working on one asset. I'm kind of wondering, Peter, if you don't mind my asking a question, I've noticed that you teach a class for free for people in the industry. You wrote a book that you certainly don't need to add to your net worth. You like talking and teaching through maps. Did you want to be a teacher? No, I don't see being a teacher as a profession as a necessary way of being a teacher just over the course of one's life. There's being a teacher, capital T. I guess you're a professor somewhere, you're a teacher class. And then there's just being a good member of a community. You learn something, you share with others. I see it in my daughter. She'll learn something new and she'll want to teach us over lunch or dinner. I think it makes all of us better. 
if we all try to teach whatever unique insight we've got. I've naturally had that to learn something new and then want to share my wonder with others. I also see it as important to fix the problems that we observe. And a lot of times that problem may be just some trash on the floor. Well, bend over and pick it up and make the world just a bit nicer for everybody else. And sometimes it's a flaw in the way that we do business or the way that laws work. If you can explain to people what's wrong and how to make it better, then you might be able to affect the change that improves lives for everybody. And that's what I see as the opportunity here with the book, The Great American Drug Deal, with No Patient Left Behind, the nonprofit that we started to advance the ideas that are in the book, the opportunity to do something that will help change the laws that we all operate under so that everybody's lives are better so that patients can actually afford the treatments that they need and have hope that there will be continued innovation to solve all of the remaining unmet needs that we all face, diseases that haven't been solved. That sounds like a pretty cool goal to have, and it just requires teaching because there's a lot of people out there that think that the best way to make drugs affordable for patients is just to price control all drugs. And that would indeed reduce the price of drugs. It might not make them any more affordable to patients, you could have a $50,000 a year drug, and if a person has a $5,000 deductible, then even after you've cut the price of that drug by 90%, that drug is still going to cost $5,000 to that patient. That strikes me as a misunderstanding. It strikes me that whoever's advocating solving affordability for patients by imposing price controls maybe just hasn't thought about that and realized like, oh yeah, wait, that wouldn't work. And what you hope, of course, is that they mean well and that their ideas aren't just an outgrowth of being anti-pharma, but that their ideas are rooted in actually helping patients. If those people truly want to help patients, then when you point out to them that price controls aren't actually going to do anything to make the medicines affordable to patients, you hope that they'll change horses, that they'll say, oh, wait, let me think that through. Oh, right. Then insurance reform. I support insurance reform. All right. Now we're talking. One of the disappointing things I've discovered, though, is some people will pick up a cause and say, I want to help patients. But in reality, what they really want to do is stick it to pharma. They just don't like pharma's business model. They don't believe that anybody should profit from saving lives. They see it as blood money, what have you. And so when you point out to them that their policy ideas won't actually make drugs more affordable to patients, they don't adapt. They just say, we can agree to disagree. You know, it's like, oh, kind of can't. If we're here to seek out the truth, then we should not agree to disagree. We should keep working on our arguments until we get to a common truth. So I found that teaching only works with people who really want to get to truth. And there's a whole other skill set of advocacy and politics that are required sometimes in order to bring about a better way. I myself am now learning that world. And it's unfortunately very different from teaching. And you're learning that now from the No Patient Left Behind nonprofit? Yeah, from talking to others that are out there trying to shape policy, from talking to lawmakers. There's some teaching involved, and then there's advocacy. And advocacy is something else entirely. And in case you're going to ask, no, I do not want to go into politics. <laughs> I'll leave it there then. Peter Kolchinsky, the author of The Great American Drug Deal, A New Prescription for Innovative and Affordable Medicines. Thank you so much for joining us on the Cineo South podcast. Thank you. Thanks for the questions. 
Peter Kolchinski is at Peter Kolchinski on Twitter. His doctorate is in virology from Harvard. So as you can imagine, as we speak at the end of the beginning of COVID, as the first vaccines roll out, Peter's had a lot to say about COVID and is really a good follow there. You can also buy his book, The Great American Drug Deal, a new prescription for innovative and affordable medicines online through Amazon. And it's a great read. Strongly recommended. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you want to talk through a hard decision you're making at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For access to more future-focused, actionable life sciences insights, visit the Cineos Health Insights Hub at insightshub.health. Cineos Health, shortening the distance from lab to life. Music